This week on Silicon Reel, Charles Armstrong, founder and director of The Trampery. Every building we do is a laboratory. You want to design things that increase the likelihood that two people are going to bump into each other. It's a very inexpensive way to actually help groups of people to, to achieve more. There were investment deals that got done. There were uh, sponsorship deals that got done. Collaborations got seeded purely by unpredictable serendipitous conversations. When you see an industry that's right for disruption, you want to get stuck in. Be optimistic. Be excited about the future. On Monday, Silicon Reel presents Charles Armstrong, The Trampery. Go out and take risks. In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Charles Armstrong, who is the founder and director of The Trampery, uh, which I've just toured one of your branches, the latest branch, the one on Old Street, which you've probably walked by it a thousand times and because uh, it's in, in the center of everything, right where Old Street and Great Eastern cross right across from what used to be the foundry mm-hmm. back in the day, which might become a boutique hotel one day. We don't know. Um, it's uh, the Trampery is a shared workspace uh, right here in Shoreditch. It's uh, hosting some of the UK's leading startups. You've just recently had some pretty big visitors, including uh, His Royal Highness, the Duke of York twice and uh, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron. Uh, Charles, uh, you studied music and political science at Cambridge. You've got a fascinating background in tech as well. Uh, but right now, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it was a pleasure being at your space. It's uh, it's fascinating. You know, I'm 43 years old, and so I kind of grew up in the 70s. And so I was walking around this co-working space and touching, like, the, the cork board. And uh, I used to make a little fort when I was a kid. And I remember putting cork board up because it was kind of trendy at the time. And every single room has, like, kind of a retro feel to it. And obviously someone put real thought into a design when a lot of times people think of co-working spaces as just that, a place to put a laptop. Laptop. And I was wondering if you could tell us your vision behind this trampery and then them in general and why maybe a co-working space is more than just a desk and a, uh, and a power socket. Well, absolutely. And I, I think uh, that just the sheer amount of time that we spend in a working environment and, and how important that is in our lives, I could never understand the, the typical office assumption that it was all right to have cheaply made furniture and bland decoration. Surely you should apply the same kinds of consideration and attention that you do for the way that you decorate your home. If anything, it's more important. If you want people to, to collaborate efficiently, if you want people to be inspired in what they do and to come up with new 
ideas, if you want to foster new kinds of uh, relationship between people, then the kind of space that you create, the way it looks, and the delight that you find going into a new room and, and the, 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 the fact that it's different than the room you just came out of, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very inexpensive way to actually help groups of people to, to achieve more. So from the very beginning with the Trampery five years ago, uh, we knew that what we did with the interiors was going to be a fundamental part of, of, of the model for, for everything that, that followed. Um, and I have to say that starting life here in the centre of Shoreditch, you couldn't have had a better heritage because... Um, this was one of the focal points for experimentation with design and architecture in London. And uh, through the 1980s and 1990s, there was a very characteristic kind of eclecticism uh, that developed here. So if you went into a, a cafe or a, a hair salon or a, a little boutique, you'd probably find some improbable mixture of uh, antique furniture, some bits of industrial cast-offs, uh, a piece of an old car or something. And, and that there was really a desire, I think, to, to break with the, the conventions. Um, and so that all got sucked into the way we did the first trampery. And then each building uh, that, that, that we've done, and uh, Old Street is, is the sixth, we tried something different. We tried to respond to the structure of the building, to the local community, to the kind of uh, members that we, we were expecting to have. Um, and, and it's been really good to, 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 to stretch the model in different directions. When it came to Old Street itself, um, I suppose we wanted to, to try and go beyond anything that we'd done <clears throat> before. And because it's essentially a brutalist structure, it's these two giant slabs of concrete with a band of glazing all around right, yeah, yeah. the outside, um, having thought about where our inspiration should, should come from, uh, we, we pretty quickly realized that the 70s was the, the period to look at. And we, we thought, well, what if we did a workspace that, that had the look and feel and quality of a 1970s luxury hotel. And so that's where the... So we've got two kinds of cork in there uh, okay. with different characteristics. Um, all, the wall, all the doors are, are made of walnut with bronze handles. The light switches are bronze. Uh, there's a lot of rosewood and teak. We've got one whole wall behind the bar in the gold ceramics and yeah. lots of details in, in gold and, and, and walnut. Uh, and, and I think as soon as we'd found that that starting point, uh, it, it began to unfold very naturally in every different part of the design we looked at. Uh, we found the right way to take that inspiration and adapt it into something quite contemporary. And I suppose most notably the facade. Um, it had a, the, the building's facade had not changed since it was built. So that's 1961. It is what is originally a, a council building like for low-income housing. It's 12 stories tall. Is that, am I roughly describing it right? That's right. So it was actually built by a private developer in 61, okay. but it was built, it was bought by uh, the borough of Hackney. Uh, and so it's got 15 stories of, of, of housing above it. Uh, and there's still one person living there, Hilda, who, was, who moved in when it was built. She came to visit us on our opening day. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and then there's the, the first floor workspace, which is cantilevered out over Old Street. Um, and that became Hackney's housing office. So if you wanted to, to apply for accommodation, that's where you'd, where you'd go. Right. 
Right. And the look was kind of that gray and like dull blue panels or something. Exactly. The blue asbestos panels. And it's that same kind of, you know, council look that you see in London. I was telling you earlier when I was touring it, we just kind of tune it out sometimes. And it's just like, oh, that building. So when you started changing the outdoor paneling with that kind of gold and brown, you know, look, I was like, what's going on here? Because, you know, you you could have been flashier, but you didn't. So it was all about the subtlety, which I think is your yeah. design background. So what we wanted to do something that, that stayed within the structure, because there's, kind of, there's an aluminium grid structure that wraps around the, the concrete plinth, uh, and then all the panels and the windows fitted within, within that. We didn't want to change that, but we wanted to find a cheeky way of radically changing the statement that the building made on the street. Because exactly as you say, we, we've, we've, we've learned to filter out a lot of 60s architecture. Um, Barbican, sorry. It becomes, it becomes invisible. <laughs> right. uh, and we wanted our building to be visible. It's right. like we, it needs to make a little statement. And so it was actually a brilliant uh, designer we worked with called Dan Ainsworth, uh, who came up with this idea of um, printed and applied vinyl panels uh, in black, white, brown, uh, and, and, and gold. Uh, that he'd do, he, he actually found a piece of quilting from the 1970s, uh, and elaborated that into this uh, facade treatment that now wraps around three sides of it. I think it's been hugely successful. I love, in the days after it went up, I love just standing on the street watching people's reaction. Right, and your entrance says the trampery, it says drugstore along with the publicist name there, and you just, I didn't even know what it was. And then I had remembered that you and what you did, and so then it, it kind of clicked with me. I want to talk about workspaces really quick, because anyone listening to us now have, probably has a tech interest or has been to a tech workspace, and we all kind of know the story. We know about the Mashi Monster slide. We know Google was revolutionary in the way they redesigned the workspace, you know, with the areas and the breakout areas and the snacks. And it was all a way of getting the most output, the most collaboration. And I've had a lot of people on this show that, that, have, that have their own workspaces and their own ideas. We had the Google campus creators. And I'm just, when you have to create a new space like this, I mean, do you really, really take yourself way back and think, you know, what are we ultimately trying to accomplish here? Because I know you have a private members club you were telling me about that what are the key elements of making a good workspace and is, are they obvious well so i go back to my my origins if you like as a, a sociologist because most of this is about some combination of sociology and and psychology um, and i think there's been a big change in the role that a working environment plays that if you go back to the 19th century uh, when the first mills and factories started to be developed, the primary consideration was how you fit humans around a mechanical production process. Right. So there was a very mechanical logic to it that, that in a way, the, 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 the source of motive power and the way it was transmitted and the flow of the different materials determined the basic framework of architecture. Right, and, and the big windows fit. was for the extra light. and Exactly. Right, okay. um, and then on, on, in terms of um, what we'd now call information workers, the clerical kind of environments, you see these rows and rows of clerks' desks, where, again, it was about taking a kind of bureaucratic 
uh, notion and mapping that out into physical space. So it was all about this very rational idea of a flow of tasks that needed to be accomplished and also supervised and monitored right. in a particular way. And there's a hierarchy structure. The big wigs got the office. Look at Mad Men. I'm thinking of Mad Men because I just came from your office. And they've got you know the, the secretaries with the desks in the open and then the account execs with the, their own offices. And Exactly. And, and there are, it's full of status signifiers. There's a lot of famous folklore from Microsoft's campus in Redmond of what people would do, the, 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 the kind of strings they would pull to get a corner office because it gave you a certain elevated status. It meant you were an aristocrat in the management structure. Um, so there the, are the, all of these considerations for, the, for the, the kind of 19th century way of organising workspace. Now, if you look at actually what the priorities are uh, for particularly for startups, but actually for larger organizations now, um, you very quickly start coming up against uh, a desire for efficient knowledge flow through an organization, for, um, for a kind of sense of well-being, for maximizing the connections between clients and partners with people in the business uh, and for, for encouraging creativity and entre entrepreneurial and problem-solving behavior. Now, these don't look at all like the drivers for the 19th century workspace. Right, right. And so the fact that we're still building a lot of offices on those 19th century assumptions is a sign of an industry that is ripe for disruption. Um, and just like any entrepreneur... When you see an industry that's right for disruption, you want to get stuck in and, uh, and, and start experimenting and, and seeing if you can work out what the new structures look like. So my observation is that a lot of these new drivers, they're about social dynamics. They're not about straightforward productivity or mechanical things. And so you suddenly start thinking about floor plans and materials and furnishing in a way that is about achieving certain unpredictable, uncontrollable social outcomes, including serendipity. If you want to design things that increase the likelihood that two people are going to bump into each other right. and have a chat. So that, that was very much part of the, the starting philosophy for, for the Trampery. Uh, and in a way, every... Every building we do is a laboratory that then we, we, we learn as much as we can and then that goes into the next set of experiments in the next building. So there's definitely this iterative character uh, to it and we keep changing uh, the, the, the solution based on what we've learned, adding new elements and uh, I think we've still got a, a lot of iterations uh, to, to go. One of the things I noticed is 20 or 25% is this huge ballroom that I just came from that has this you know, black and white you know, design and some great things on the wall. But you said it can suit up to 200 people standing. I mean, that's a big uh, part of your space that goes for a social type of experience. And is that by design? Because ultimately you want that serendipity to happen, whether it's other companies, other events, people in your workspace. I mean, what percent of, of business is social? I guess I, uh, that's the question. Well, so... <clears throat> what does social mean? In a, in a very <laughs> First Trampery, um, if, if I just look at how the kitchen has evolved in, in the Trampery, our first office, we, we had a pretty conventional kitchen. It was tucked away in a little room at the back, and, and most of it was dedicated to dusking. Um, and 
I realized that actually the times when somebody was going to get a sandwich from the fridge or go to make a cup of coffee, those were the times when people weren't locked into what, whatever they were doing on their computer. Those were the times when they might be interested to speak to somebody. And we weren't really making much of that opportunity. So when we moved to Bevenden Street in 2011, um, the, the biggest change in the floor plan, we pulled the, the kitchen right to the front of the building. You walk through the front door, you're in the kitchen. There's this big breakfast bar that wraps around. So for one thing, it was designed to foster opportunities to talk to people for, for members when they, when they were taking a break from their desks. But also it meant that guests coming in, they had a chance to talk to... If maybe you were sitting there waiting 10 minutes for a meeting with, with another business. You might strike up a conversation. with. And there were investment deals that got done. There were uh, sponsorship deals that got done. There were collaborations that got seeded purely by unpredictable serendipitous conversations that happened there. So we knew that was important, and we elaborated that for the buildings. With Old Street... We thought, well, we, we can't just keep making the kitchen bigger and bigger. It's clearly not a kitchen anymore. And that's where the idea of actually separating it and recognising this is a members club. This is a different facility that goes hand in hand with the desk space. But it's essentially the same philosophy. This is where the, the people with desks go when they're taking a break from their work. But it's also something that we can open up to a wider membership. So people from publicists, people from publicist clients, other interesting entrepreneurs in, in the community, journalists, we can give them membership so that they can, they've got, they've got a little home base in the centre of Shoreditch, whether that's in the afternoon when they might have a cup of coffee or whether that might be for an evening function that they come in with a couple of friends, they can have a glass of wine, they're going to meet interesting people there. Uh, and then the ballroom uh, that, that you mentioned, yes, we devoted a big chunk of space to a very flexible, uh, very beautiful uh, uh, function room uh, that already... There have been all kinds of activities from, from, from hackathons to, uh, to, to uh, training events to, to conferences uh, that have happened there. Um, but that's another very important part uh, of the geometry because every one of those events means there's a whole new community of people who maybe just for a few hours, they're coming in. Right. They're coming over to your house for a party. Exactly. And you're going to probably interact with them in some way. Even if it's for 10 minutes, you're going to go say hi and check it out. And That's right. And, and on the one hand, you don't want those people that flow in and out to disrupt the people whose businesses are based there, who have to be the first consideration in the business. So the, the, as you saw, the, 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 there's access control and yeah. the flows don't interfere. But on the other hand, you want to provide the opportunities for little eddies and currents and interactions to happen. So the drawing room, the members club, again, is the central focus for that. Guests who come in for an event, they're welcome to stay in the drawing room. Or if they come out just to take a phone call or something, that's when they have the chance to bump into uh, some of the, the residents, the, the resident businesses who, who might be having a cup of coffee there. Okay. I like it already. I, um, hopefully I'll be hanging out there more in the future. Talk to me about co-working space as a business model. I had uh, James Layfield in here from Central Working. You know, they have that new space uh, over in Whitechapel, I believe it is. And, you know, he's had a few iterations here. You know, I mentioned Campus London that Easy Vidra had done before he's gone on to Google Ventures. We know Rohan Silva has his new second home. Uh, Alex Hoy... I I was over at Runway East the other day, a completely different feel from you 
but a lot of fun uh, there, you know, lower tech, rougher, but a, a lot of fun. What is the business model of a co-working space? It seems to me like a hard business model, uh, although your space is really unique and I see a, a definite need for it. So what's it like doing this? You've done this a few times, right? Yeah. Um, well, obviously there are, there are a number of different ways that you can structure it as a business and I think one of the very exciting things in London is quite what a wide variety of solutions there are now as probably as wide a variety as you find anywhere in the world this is one of the the R&D centers for right. workspace not just workspace design but for the business models that underlie it um, and you, you have you have some some models which are based on alignment with a, essentially a corporate backer or an investment fund and where there's some equity element that is factored into the, uh, the, the overall um, business en- envelope. Right, kind of that's more of the accelerator incubator yes. type. Yes, but the, the boundaries are becoming increasingly fuzzy. Um, then you've got operators like the Trampery where it's a m- more straightforward hotel model um, where you've got facilities that members just pay a certain rate for using those facilities Um, but maybe within that the the distinction is between operations that are essentially about a large diffuse membership of people who are spending short periods of time in there uh, that are more a kind of hot dusking model versus models which are based on permanent full-time Occupation, which has really been the centre of gravity for the Trampery, um, and it is—it's a tough business in a city like London, yeah. where so, property prices are rising everywhere, right? Um, and getting available property is must be near impossible. I don't know how you got this space, but well, so, so every like it, it means the core part of our competence is being able to source suitable properties to be able to negotiate terms with property owners and with partners that enable us to make what we want to do economic in situations where, on the face of it, it might not be economic. Um, And then to be able to manage refurbishments and also operate in ways that achieve a very great impact whilst keeping costs to an absolute minimum. It's a a business where you have to be phenomenally disciplined. So all of the skills that we now have uh, in terms of surveying and being able to assess properties, in terms of lease negotiation, uh, in terms of design, costing, uh, and the way that we manage contracts, there's a lot of different levels to it, and every single one is essential to making this work. But it's a tough business. It's a tough business. And since you're not um, enjoying any potential equity upside with any kind of a, a piece in any of these companies, you don't have that potential to look forward to that a lot of companies in the startup space have, right? But that's a, it's a very, as you'll know, a very uncertain uh, yeah. potential upside. Yeah. But also, and also, like I would say, that there's a very specific reason why we don't do that. Because um, our model, the Trampery's model, is, 
is, is based around multiple growth stages. We want some businesses that are just starting out, but we want businesses that are already established their teams are going into a growth stage. Uh, like we were delighted to, to, to provide space for CityMapper uh, earlier this year. They were going through a period of phenomenal growth, but just the expertise that they have uh, means that in a mixed community, alongside much smaller businesses, there's more opportunity to learn. So essentially, we need the most neutral model possible in order to be attractive to that wide range of, of businesses. CityMap is a great company, uh, Index, you know, backed, and, and a couple other big backers there. Um, yeah, it's impressive. Everybody raves about that app. So you really think about who, who's, what these different companies are bringing to your overall ecosystem uh, when you bring them in. One of the things that really attracted me to having you on is your uh, relationship with publicists, and they have this drugstore piece. Obviously, publicists is a, you know, a huge global company when it comes to advertising. And I was just wondering if you could explain your partnership with them. I know you said you had a, that they had a big closing day with a catalog account or something recently, which is a big move um, because they are a very traditional company and there's nothing traditional about, you know, your space and, and being in Old Street, right? Absolutely. When, but it's, um, it's, it's existed for, for 100 years. It, it's been a giant in the, the advertising industry for, for most of that time. Uh, but I think what's interesting about Publicis is how focused on innovation it is at a very senior level so um, both Artur Sardin the chief executive of Publicis Worldwide and Maurice Levy the chief executive of Group Publicis um, have been involved in the decision to form the relationship with the Trampery and to create the, the drugstore proposition they've both been to visit here and, uh, and, and I suppose also Dylan Williams, uh, who, who they engaged, and who, who's a stalwart of the, the tech city, the Shoreditch uh, uh, technology community, um, engaging him as a chief strategy officer uh, and chief innovation officer. Like, you could tell that was a business that didn't just want to carry on business as usual. They, 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 that was a clear signal that they intended to do some very, very bold things with the business. Uh, Artu Sardin, uh, a couple of years previously, had introduced um, a kind of focal point for the whole global network uh, around lead the change. Um, and, and again, it was clear that wasn't just words, that they actually wanted to do it. Um, and so very quickly, um, after, after I'd, I'd started speaking to, to Artur and Dylan, um, it was clear that they were ready to rethink their core strengths in the, the kind of strategic relationship that they've got with industry-leading companies around the world about what new kinds of value they could provide alongside the established advertising and communications-related services. Um, and they just, just as Publicis itself was seeking to innovate, they'd had conversations with client after client that was struggling to keep up with new insurgents in a market. And really, that's where the, the concept for the drugstore collaboration came from. Because um, we'd equally seen from five years of experience with the Tramperers members uh, that a lot of the challenges that, that, that startups face when they go into a rapid growth phase uh, are about having access to wider networks, having access to resources to, to promote 
new products and services, to scale rapidly, but also to understand how you evolve an organization to maintain accountability when you might be doubling your headcount in size over a six-month period. And there was this potential marriage between senior executives in very large corporations and entrepreneurs with fast-growth businesses uh, that crucially required an intermediary to provide a kind of safe hand-holding zone to connect those and to make, bring those separate worlds together. And, and so nobody's, nobody's done this at scale yet. There have been all kinds of experiments, as you know, mm. bringing together corporates uh, and startups. Yeah, and but, I'm very skeptical. And there's because I've been, you know, every other week there's another accelerator, there's another incubator, there's another huge corporate coming in. I can't tell if they really care, if they just want the ideas. You know, the innovator's dilemma says they'll never get it. So I'm always curious when I hear about things like this, especially something like advertising. They are really very traditional industry. You know, yeah, and I haven't heard of many of them dipping their toe on this side of the pond. I heard WPP has something going on, but I, I never hear big things about them really in Innovating when it comes to the tech space. So, well, is that so, a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think that of the status quo, that's absolutely a fair assessment. I think that what you've seen is a lot of the large agencies um, set up small incubators almost as showpieces just because they need to do something to show that they're not dinosaurs. Um, and it's usually a fairly peripheral part of what they're actually doing. Yeah, it doesn't affect their core business ultimately, right? Exactly. And I think already what's different with, with drugstore and with the relationship with the Trampery is the level of senior strategic attention it's had uh, and how carefully thought through it's been and how much ambition there is for that to become a platform that sits over Publicis' ex- existing global network and is able to deliver a completely new set of services alongside the, the, the roster of advertising services. I'm curious. I'd love to check back with you in three or six months and find out you know, the, the nuts and bolts of how that works because it's, it's hard to keep something like that together. It's hard to keep the, the, you know, the guys from the West End to come out to the East End and you know, you've, got a, well, you've got a task ahead of you. But I like the fact that there is that intermediary because if they just jumped in bed with a small or up-and-coming ad tech company, I think that would be harder to do you know, without that mediator. Um, you've been doing Tramperies for a while. This is your sixth, right? And I was just wondering how the other co spaces have evolved? Have they gone bigger? Have they gone smaller? And then also just get your uh, thoughts on this tech sector. I mean, uh, you know, it's in 2009, your trampling did some crowdfunding back in the day, equity crowdfunding. So you've been around here for a while and you have an interesting perspective. So if you could hit me with both of those tramperies and then your background with trampling. Well, so um, when we, when we opened the first trampery in 2009, it's hard to believe now there wasn't a single shared workspace in Shoreditch. As, like, can you believe that? In five no. years, we've gone from none latitude to about or? 30. Okay, all oh, right, right. Okay. Um, and so that meant that I didn't have much competition to compare what we were doing uh, against, which is, which is a frustration as an entrepreneur. It's always good to position yourself against something. Um, and then um, Tech Hub opened six months later, and they had a radically different approach, which I was delighted by, because... You're already seeing differentiation in the market. They had a much more stripped-down 
interior. I don't know if you remember their old space just by uh, at the top of City Road. Right. Is um, it what the, where the white collar factory now is? Exactly. That's yeah. all gone, gone to make way I knew for some the businesses tower. that used to be in there. I actually never got a tour, but I knew Huddle was over there and, you know, in that area. And it was bare bones, right? Yes. Basic. They didn't know when the building was going to be tore down. They, to- they kept being told it was going to be six months, six months, and it was bare bones. That's right. Okay. Um, and then another one and another one and another one popped up. And everyone was doing it a little bit differently. Um, but I think from the beginning, I knew that this wasn't actually a niche offering in the, the property market. That actually it was, for all the reasons that I touched on earlier, it was a sea change in the way that businesses use space. And what we were with the tip of an iceberg that was going to change all offices. And so there was never a sense that there was some limited market. It was going to be all businesses. So it's been a luxury in a way, being here and not feeling that there's some limited demand and a zero-sum game between all of the different operators. Um, uh, And I think that's made it a lot easier for all of us to take curiosity in what each other are doing and, 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 and be, be interested and supportive of each other. There's very, it's a very friendly scene, which I think is, is important, bearing in mind the, the fact we're meant to be supporting the community. So, right. um, and then, people, people sneak in and check out your tramp? Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. James Layfield doing some, in, you know, some we, recon? We all, we all do that with each other. Okay. Let's we'll see what's coming over the horizon. Okay. Um, and, and I think what I can say is that Consistently over those five years, standards have got higher and higher and higher. And it's, it's one of the reasons that with Old Street, I really wanted to lift the bar again. Because I think when we opened in 2009, we really set a standard for a kind of somewhat more luxurious working environment for early stage businesses. Then when, in 2011, when we opened Bevenden Street, we raised it a lot higher again. We had, we've got a wall in there that's all made of reclaimed ships decking. We've got another wall that's a 10-meter-long uh, photograph. We, we did a lot of really beautiful things in that building. And, and, and then as other people's spaces opened, the standards got higher and higher. Um, and and that, this has to be a positive thing in a market. Like We're all looking to improve the quality of what we can provide to to our members, and I think that London is is about the best environment in the world. Why is it better than New York? Um, I think there's more diversity here, but also I think that the aesthetic is more developed here. That that you you, you mentioned earlier the the industrial trope, which during the 90s established itself as a kind of template. Uh, and it's been stamped out over and over again. That still seems to be the, the lingua franca of workspace, trendy workspace design. Right, which is the exposed concrete, the exposed HVAC, the, yeah, very the industrial brush steel. Am I kind of summarizing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And um, that's New York. New York hasn't evolved, you're saying. Well, no, that. it has evolved. There is diversity. I don't want to say anything negative about New York, but just from the space that I visited uh, there. I haven't seen the same level of ambition and experimentation and adventurousness in how far you can push this. Right. Well, and again, I lived in New York for many years and, you know, London has these very diverse neighborhoods. 
architectural styles, which you're taking advantage of. I mean, very distinct neighborhoods. I mean, this compared to a mile away, compared to two and three miles away, you have completely different industries, completely different, you know, stories of what happened. And so you're playing off that. And I guess we feel it more than we think. And, you know, in New York, you do have the grid system. And sometimes it's hard to tell if you're on 23rd Street or 43rd Street or on 8th Avenue or 10th Avenue or 3rd Avenue. So sometimes I guess you can't really incorporate the history of that city into the feel of the building, and maybe that's maybe that's lacking from listening to you. Maybe, but obviously, New York has many, many fantastic uh, spaces and, 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 and entrepreneurial communities. Uh, so, and that has a lot of similarities with London. I think right. two most. Similar what, what have you that. seen tech in London evolve? I mean, you know, from five years ago to now, um, what are the big things? If you had to pick out two or three, you know, powerful changes that you've seen, what are they? Well, so. I would say the single biggest change is is what happened here in, in, in Shoreditch. That I um, I started coming to this this part of town in the mid nineties. Then I came here to set up Trampoline Systems, uh, my software business. In what was it like in the mid nineties? If you could just take us back to ninety five or ninety six, like walking around, what would you see? So, it, look, if you, if you, okay, if you just look around now and then mentally erase all of the new buildings uh, and then look at all the tatty stuff that's here and just make it about ten times more tatty than that, uh, then... And put some vacancies in there. Yeah. 20, 30% um, vacancy. It was, it was... It was all... But they already, by the mid-90s, was this very, very distinct... Uh, focal point for innovation. And it wasn't anything to do with technology at that point. Um, but it had just achieved this gravitational pull during the 1980s and the first half of the 90s that, that created this energy around the visual arts, around fashion, around product design. Uh, those were really the three communities that, that, that seemed to be most fertile here. And there was a lot of experimentation with space and with the built environment. So, for instance, as soon as there were enough artists who had kind of taken cheap warehouse spaces here, they wanted somewhere to go and drink, obviously. They didn't want to go to the, the, the regular old boozer. They wanted somewhere that was a bit more for them, a bit mm-hmm. more in, in keeping with their, their values and aesthetics. And I do think that a lot of what unfolded later with workspaces like the Trampery, it was really started by some of those, those people in, uh, in the 90s. Actually, going back even further, in 1984, um, uh, an amazing man called Richard Boot um, opened the Strong Rooms. It was the first recording studios okay. in Shoreditch. It's still going strong, just yeah. off Curtain Road. Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't know it was a recording studio before. I just thought well, see, it was a you, pub. Might, you know it as a bar, uh, yeah. uh, but the whole the, like that's that's very significant um, because from the beginning, his whole conception for how that recording studio was going to work was it was about a community. It's so it's so much a forerunner of what we've tried to do with the Trampery. So that the way that he decorated, like it's crazily decorated and painted by some quite famous people, and the way he furnished it, and the social spaces that he included, and then. He opened a bar as part of the strong rooms, 
originally not really thinking that people from outside were going to be interested. It was for the people who were there, the bands that were recording stuff, the musicians, yeah. to help them meet each other. And, and this was very, very early part of the fabric of Shoreditch. And you had a lot of people trying to do things that would help to build communities. And unknowingly, they were laying the foundations for, 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 for then the blooming of the technology innovation scene that happened from about 2005 onwards. It's a good perspective. This should be a documentary about Shoreditch, and you should be narrating it, I think. <laughs> Tell me a bit about you. Uh, you studied uh, social science, and you studied music, I believe, at Cambridge. Um, I know you like photography, and you're, in your spare time, you said you, you should be found in a basement in Dalston listening to music. What are you doing here in the tech space? Do you ever ask yourself, what am I doing here? There's, it's one of those bizarre accidents. I, I never expected to... Uh, to, to wind up that way. But I, I, I think that the sociology is probably the, the centre of it. That, that simultaneously, I'm fascinated by clusters and the way that they grow and develop. And, and that's what drew me to, to Shoreditch. Because even from the mid-90s, when there was no technology here, I could see that the kind of approach to collaboration and creativity that which is very improvisational and very free flowing mm. was starting to look like a cluster but nothing like any of the classical clusters uh, uh, like like Cambridge where you have a big institution at the heart of it or, 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 or like Silicon Valley indeed where you, you have a big educational institution mm. and kind of quite a lot of formal structure this, so it was a sociologist in me that got fascinated in what looked like a new phenomenon and wanted to understand it, wanted to get involved in that. And then the, as I started to understand bits of it, I, I couldn't resist the impulse to start tinkering and try to add bits to it and provide a facility that would help it uh, to, to, to grow. So I think that's a big part of it. And then on the other side, with my software business, Trampoline Systems, that's equally about sociology because it's all about uh, doing big data analysis on patterns of business relationships and of growth trends and sexual analyses. Um, and so they've become like the yin and yang of, of, my, uh, of my work life. One with very tangible face-to-face -face physical environments, the other uh, with slightly more disembodied uh, data analysis and visualization and reporting. But they both stem from the same interest uh, that I have in what makes businesses and business communities tick what helps them to grow it seems like nowadays that the tech person you're going to bump into now uh at the campus or at the roundabout is going to be either some ultra business entrepreneur guy with a certain way of thinking or you know maybe a tech guy a coder guy that kind of thing i don't know if that's right or left brain but they're not the, necessarily the brain that, that you have been trained with and i was wondering if you you know sometimes catch yourself you know pulling a, an entrepreneur over or pulling over a tech guy and saying you know these are some other very important aspects of a workspace or of an interactive environment or something, where it, sometimes it's harder for them to get because they're not that left or right brain. Well, but, but you, you know what? Um, a trend that I've definitely noticed over the last, last five years is people from engineering backgrounds, like very pure engineering backgrounds, um, starting to get very interested in social patterns. Um, and I don't think there's any disjoint between the, 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 the kind of theoretical views that 
making a community work to a, to a certain extent is an engineering problem. So, for instance, you look at the, the Occupy movement. That attracted a lot of coders and a lot of people with an engineering background. And those were some of the people who were most active in trying to design decision-making processes and things that govern social uh, consequences. So I, I think there's actually a very interesting confluence between the hard engineering and the social sciences uh, ways of looking at problems. Because a lot of the time now we're dealing with complex phenomena that, in, that involve reciprocal interactions amongst a large group of people. Yeah, and I'm an engineer by training, and we love to model things. And you know, all engineering is based on modeling some system and then trying to, to, to make an imperfect, unpredictable system into something predictable. So yeah, it makes sense that the ultimate multivariable system is the social situation. Mm-hmm. Charles, we always ask people that come here a few questions at the end. I want to ask you, if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Charles and give that young man a bit of advice, um, would you tell him to do a certain thing or to focus on a certain piece uh, now that you know what you know? Gosh. Well, the first thing I say is don't worry with the violin. You really shouldn't try to play that instrument. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't waste really? your time. Yeah, it yeah. always it's, impresses me that anyone can play a violin. No, like, I, was bo- I think I was born for keyboard instruments, really. The okay. violin was just so you tried. a disaster, yes. Terrible. Okay. All right. um, secondly, if I, if I could give a piece of advice to the 20 year, 20-year-old Charles, it, it would probably be spend less time thinking start doing practical experiments quicker. Because uh, in, in the end, I think that's how we all learn the fastest. Um, I think in my early 20s, I spent quite a lot of time observing, thinking, writing. Uh, and then by, by my mid-20s, I'd figured out, you just have to get out and try stuff. And, 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 and if I'd done that a few years earlier... Maybe I'll be a bit further down the, right, the track. Of right, and that's a lesson we can learn from this community because this community is all about trying things, right? Get the MVP out there. Release early. Release exactly. early. <laughs> that's well said. Um, second part of that question is, best advice you've ever received, business or personal? I know. It's always the hardest oh, that's question. tough. I was probably... So I was extremely lucky um, for a couple of years to be mentored by an amazing gentleman called Michael Young, Lord Young of Dartington. Um, I was the last person that he mentored before his death in 2002. Uh, and he gave me a lot of incredible advice, some of which I only really appreciated years later. But one of the first pieces of advice he gave me was that I could learn, that like from every single person I met, there was something life-changing that I could learn from them. And I think particularly, having been through the Cambridge experience, um, I wasn't looking at the world that way. I had a kind of clear hierarchy of the kinds of people I could learn things from. And that was such a valuable piece of advice and has proven to be so true and has changed the way that I interact with with people in in all kinds of different situations. So I, I definitely... Would, would pin that one up pretty close to the top of the stack. That's a fascinating um, observation. It's also one that's hard to practice sometimes because sometimes you'll meet someone and I'll let you're thinking the last thing I'm going to do <laughs> is learn something from him. But uh, I guess you can, right? I guess you really can learn what to do, what not to do. Uh, but that's interesting that you said that you came from that perspective, you know, from being at Cambridge. Last part of that question is, you know, to the 20-year-old that's listening to us somewhere in the world, you know, that, that wants to, to kind of be involved in all of this energy around here, whether it's, you know, you can call it tech 
tech, but I guess it's really innovation and really change. You know, what advice do you give to them? What's the best thing they can do themselves to become part of the ecosystem? Well, so I think right now when the world is full of so many kinds of fear and all kinds of things that looked very certain through the 20th century now look very uncertain. Um, that's, that's imposing all kinds of burdens on, on young people looking to the future because it's harder and harder to see what that future is going to be. And so I, like the, what, what I'll say to, to anyone out there who's uh, just pondering what, what life should, should hold is be optimistic be excited about the future, go out and take risks, uh, go out and try things that you're fundamentally interested in, and, and let that, that guide what you do. You'll discover what you're good at, you'll discover what you're bad at, and you'll learn quickly, and you'll have some bumps and bruises along the way. But I think more than any period in history, this is an era when we all need to be entrepreneurs, when we all need to start out with that mentality that we're going to vigorously go into the unknown uh, because the reality is the future for all of us is now <laughs> pretty much unknown. Uh, and the more, peop- the more we can develop that literacy around risk and observation and, and, and quick learning, and the more that we can be optimistic and, and see the possibilities of positive futures, then the better things are going to turn out for us individually but also for society as a whole. It's good advice. I, I have a recent mentor I've met, and he has a phrase which is "just do it." And it's it's funny how much you can learn by 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 not theorizing, like you were said, by not always reading a book about it, by not always googling it, but sometimes just by doing it, which is how you've learned, you know, through the, the trampery iterations over the years. So uh, that's good advice. Very good advice indeed. How can people get in touch with you if they want to become members of the the trampery old street or move in there or get involved with publicists? What's the best way? Well, um, you. Can- Go to our website, which is thetramperie.com, find lots of information there, uh, and get in touch with us. But equally, just come knock on the door. We're always happy to, to see people. We're, we're still in the phase of we love showing people right. around because it's still like it's exciting for us every time. So come visit. Yeah, it's got that new car smell when you <laughs> walk in. And uh, yeah, you got to come just to see the wallpaper. Um, it's off the charts. I took a few pictures. I'm going to send them out later. But I'm pic- the pictures don't do it justice because it really feels like, you know, I'm, I'm being transformed back. And like I said, it's a great conversation piece. You want to show people around when they come in. It gives people that extra kind of fun feeling, good feeling. And I can see how it'll just make collaboration you know, and work it better. So, uh, fantastic. I'm so glad we hooked up. Um, it's just so nice to see more positive energy in this space and, uh, the collaboration aspect, you know, I'm, I'm glad that people aren't fighting over territory here and it, it, you know, you can be inspired by what someone else does. And so, uh, I, I like to see that. And the fact that you said it's not about tech workspaces anymore, it's every workspace is benefiting from that. And, uh, and so that's going to be exciting to see. So fantastic. If you're listening to us on iTunes, you can see uh, Charles's multicolored trousers mm-hmm. on our channel on YouTube. And uh, uh, also um, we're putting out uh, trailers now every Friday. So right before people go out for drinks on Friday around 3 or 4 o'clock, you can get 40 seconds of the previous guest. And then you can watch us live, obviously, on Friday afternoons. So uh, come check that out. We're on uh, Twitter, at SiliconReal. And uh, we'd love guest suggestions and let us know who you want to see in the future. Uh, Charles, uh, we always say it's about the people 
which is what I think the theme is in this tech scene. And I've sat down with so many fantastic people that are making this all, you know, happen. And uh, it's a lot of fun to be here. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I love the space and I, I hope to come back soon. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. All right. Take care. This week on Silicon Reel, we have Saranga Chandra Talake, partner at Balderton Capital. If you want to make an impact, then one of the smartest, easiest, most efficient ways of doing that is to start a company. Increasingly, we are all going to have to be entrepreneurial. Forget a job for life. People don't have a job for a decade or even a job for five years these days. You have to have such passionate belief in the thing you're doing in order to be a really effective entrepreneur. An IPO is not a goal or an exit. An IPO is simply another step. The entrepreneurial challenge is knowing when to change and when not to. Silicon Reel presents Saranga Chandra Talake, Balderton Capital. Seek to perfect your, your game in every level, in every way. <laughs>